Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, April 11, 2021. The share ID numbers for Friday, April the 9th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,736. That's 16736. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,737. That's 16737. This morning, A Vision for You presents Embracing Bill's Story. Chapter 1 of the big book is devoted to Bill W.'s story. Anyone familiar with the big book knows that Bill offers his personal narrative and testimony of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Essentially, a penned 12-step call. It's a frightening, vivid, and detailed account of one alcoholic's descent into the madness of alcoholism. It is also the inspiring and uplifting story of his complete recovery and his resulting mental, physical, and spiritual health. It is this humbling of Bill in the presence of powerlessness, this whittling down of his puffed ego, this forced confrontation with his essential finiteness, which ultimately allows Bill to embrace a spiritual remedy to his alcohol problem. Truly a miraculous story. Bill W.'s story gives us inspiration and hope as we see that even someone hopelessly addicted to alcohol, as Bill W. was, can recover. And if he can, so can anyone. Here to present Bill's story and bring it to life based on her personal experience is Barbara P., a recovered compulsive overeater from Georgia. Barbara is devoted to the 12 Steps, of Overeaters Anonymous, and it's with great appreciation and delight that I welcome Barbara P. to the line this morning. Welcome, Barbara. Good morning, everybody. Barbara P., Recovered, Not Cured, Compulsive Overeater from the Atlanta, Georgia area, and thank you, Leah, so much for, for asking me to do this. Oh, so I really had to ask myself initially, you know, what, what what do I want to speak on? And I thought about Bill's story immediately came to mind. And, and you know, I didn't know exactly why, but I try and listen to those impulses today. Um, so it is about Bill's story. And I what really came to me, once I started breathing again, I have to say I was very afraid to do this. So please bear with me. I am nervous, but I really felt compelled to talk about Bill. You know, where I started with Bill was I completely leaned out. I I could not see, and I had been in OA when I came to the vision. I had been in OA about 25 years already. You know, chronic relapser, lots of lots of good experience, knew the talk, and but couldn't figure out how to really, really connect 
to this higher power. And I'll talk a little bit about my story as I speak. But Bill's story, I always thought, just really didn't apply to me. You know, I thought he's just too different. But one of the things very early on was I listened to a podcast by Kim G. And some of her wisdom was she advised, think about this. Think about leaning in, the concept of leaning in. Did I eat like Bill drank? Did I think like Bill thought? And did I feel like Bill felt? So I started on my journey in, in vision and reading Bill's story and reading it with a, a big book guide and got a whole different perspective. And that's what I really wanted to share today because uh, I have a feeling and suspect that many of us came in thinking, oh, I don't know how this applies to me. I don't really know if this is going to fit. So I really do invite you, as Kim G did to me, to lean in where you can, see what does fit. And, I, you know, I thought about this as I was thinking about talking today, and I thought about I really spent my whole life leaning out from the world, leaning out from everything, looking for reasons why I didn't fit in. It's it's really became a defense mechanism. You know, I know as a kid, my first, you know, foremost was I was too fat. I was a, I was a heavy kid. I was not... Uh, hugely obese, but look in looking back at pictures, now I can see that, but I thought I was, and I was bigger than most of my friends. So I did have food, you know, a, an odd relationship with food from very early on in life, and um, I, I gained weight, and I, I was not an athletic kid, so I was different that way. I looked different. You know, I doubt, really, I, again, this was in my mind, there were so, there was a long list of why I didn't fit in. I was a different religion. Besides being a different weight, I was a different religion from most of my friends, all of my friends, really. And, you know, so I looked a little bit different. Again, not athletic, so I was, I got heavy pretty quickly. Um, my family was different, even than other parts of my family. I had cousins who camped and, and lived in a different state, and they all lived around each other. We didn't. So everything became about how did I fit in, and I realized I yearned to fit in. Truly, I, it was what I wanted, and then it became what I was most afraid of. So I put up a front. I put up a shield, and I put on a mask, just like the actor you know, when you see in some of these science fiction movies and they look like one person, they look like a normal person, and at some point that mask starts to just crumble and drip away. And that's, I feel like, how recovery has been a process of peeling away that mask. And boy, 10 steps will do that for you. But anyway, back to Bill. So what I thought about Bill at first in all my years in OA, and I was a dedicated OA member, I had good periods of abstinence, but I thought, eh, you know, Bill is, he's male, he's Christian, he's full of ego, arrogance, he's kind of that sales type, a slick sort of guy, a ladies man. This was really what I, I saw on the outside, really the kind of guy I couldn't get to. But, you know, bottom line was I was pretty intimidated by those kind of folks in business, those kind of people, right? I had a lot of defense against people who I thought were better than me and even created reasons why maybe they were worse than me. Put up a lot of walls. So embracing Bill, I think, early when I came to vision, it's probably about 
you know, I, I really don't remember, I think six or seven years ago, but I just listened for a long time, a couple of years, and then I started working with a big book guide. And as I really started working in this step work deeply with someone, I started to embrace the this whole idea of leaning in. I also found it very scary. And I started to embrace the part of me that was very scared. Uh, and look and realize, wow, yeah, I sought comfort, ease and comfort in a lot of ways. Food being one, obviously the huge and the first of those, first of many. So Aunt Bill's story, starting right in the first paragraph, so I hope if you have your book, page one, right? They start with this war fever ran high in the New England town. Now I can immediately look at, I've never been in war, I'm not a army kind of gal, I've never done any kind of military service, can't relate, right? And I would normally, with everything, stop right there. This is my MO. But if I read this, I say, to which we new young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned and we were flattered. Ah, do I look for flattery? Absolutely. When the first citizens took us into their homes, making us feel heroic. Bill's looking for a, a feeling. Here was love, applause. Oh my gosh, I have chased love and applause. You know, and it's ironic because for so many parts of my life, I, I wanted to be invisible, but then I resented being invisible. I, you know, yeah, you you know, uh, if you're if you're an addict, it's this kind of tension that's always in us. But Bill says again, first paragraph: I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. Now I discovered know when I went off to college and mind you in high school I still remember going for my physical for college I was about 175 pounds at that point I'm about 5'5 five, five. Um, so I don't know size 16 18 somewhere in there and I remember the doctor that did the physical said ah, just you know give it up you will never be thin no fat people are always fat this is just the way it is so he sort of gave me my sentence at that point, and I did think so much of my problems was just about my weight. But here I go off to college, and everyone's in the excitement and living on my own for the first time. I was in the dorms. Of course, I had that food plan, and I started eating. I discovered food. And where many people you know, got the freshman 15, I got the freshman 50. And I've heard many a compulsive overeater say exactly those same words. You know, he says, I forgot the strong warnings, all the diets. I grew up with diets and all of the things, but I forgot all of that. And then again, in that first paragraph, I was very lonely and again turned to food. Another condition where I go for comfort, I go cause and effect. The you know doctor's opinion tells us very clearly we like the effect. So when he got lonely, turned again to alcohol. Definitely relate. On the bottom of that page, you know he goes he goes to war. He comes back twenty two years old. Um, he was born in eighteen ninety five. So what he's in the early nineteen hundreds. Picture the time. And I love the ego. Bill is a little kid whistling in the dark, I think. And I really started to see it. 
He says, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation? Oh, my gosh, just looking for that little bit of good job, and I'm, I'm grabbing that. I'm building that up. My talent for leadership, I imagined, And I love Bill's writing because I think he is kind of chuckling at himself. When I look in the rearview window, I can laugh. But, you know, he imagined, I imagine would place me at the head of vast enterprises. Bill becomes very determined to be successful. What I've learned from some of our historians, I'm not, but I did. I just looked up a little to try and get my facts right. They explained to me, people on this line, and this was very important to me, Because here again, I had that vision of this perfect person, right? Sales guy, slick, good talker. Bill's parents left him, both of them, when he was, and Stepping Stone says about 11. I mean, that's really key. Talk about abandonment, right? And his parents got divorced, which was unheard of back in the early 1900s. His dad went off, went across the country, and then months later his mom goes off and decides to she went to medical school, very smart woman, but leaves him, leaves him with his grandparents. And they talk about Bill and his history being, you know, really prey to abandonment and depression. He, he fell in love, and then his first love died when he was 17. He was, he, I can see this little kid whistling in the dark. All of a sudden, Bill does not look so intimidating. In my story, I remember going into total self-reliance very early on. I, I distinctly remember being afraid that something was under my bed. But I also remember that feeling that I could not reach out for my parents. I couldn't, you know, as a little kid, you know how you do. Something's going to grab your ankles, so you jump from the bed and jump, try and jump across the room. But I remember knowing, even if I got out of bed, I, there was nowhere to go for help. It's, it's how I felt. So I learned self-reliance, and I think Bill did too, you know, on his own at 11 with grandparents, loving grandparents. But I think I, think I had a reach for um, defenses. So he goes on on page two. I took a night law course and, you know, again, third sentence, I'd proved to the world I was important. He became very determined. He's like, some people become rich. Why not I? You know, and I can relate to this. I started getting A's in school. I really was almost an overachiever because I was determined to prove myself. It was coming from this confidence issue, but I was trying to prove myself. Now, he says drink for him started interfering, though. It started interfering. And he says at one of my finals, I was too drunk to think or, to, or write. Well, I remember that distinctly. I never studied without a bag of something next to me. I mean, it just, I, and I really rationalize as he does. He says, though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk. Uh, you know, that the rationalization began, well, I couldn't, food gave me energy. I needed energy to do what I was doing. It was necessary. That was my belief. I started to believe that. I knew it wasn't true, honestly. You know, I knew it wasn't true, but I started to believe it. So he says, by the time he had completed this course, the law was not for me. 
the inviting maelstrom, the chaos, the complete insanity of Wall Street had him in its grip. Well, I have to say, this is going to be opinion. This is not from history or the big book. I know for me, I just knew the nine to five was not for me. And it honestly did not support my lifestyle of doing what I wanted, when I wanted, and especially with food, to tell you the truth. So I knew I wanted something more exciting, something freer, something more flexible. I think a lot of that was so I could do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. So he goes off, the Wall Street just speaks to him. And it actually did for me too. I ended up in financial services. It was very interesting. And I was anything but a salesperson, but I somehow ended up there. I mean, literally, it's so crazy. But my choices, I think really my career choices, my life choices came from chasing excitement, from chasing applause, from chasing flattery and proving myself. <clears throat> he starts to say that he and his wife go off on this adventure. And he was, he was a smart guy. He saw that, you know, this might work. But he also sees on the bottom of page two, um, they give up their positions. He sees that a lot of people, this kind of has a cautionary warning in here. The last sentence before the last paragraph on page two, I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. I think he's talking a little bit about his own personal situation, that that can affect losing money, being a, just leading to disaster. Because food did affect everything for me, ultimately. I'll talk about that as, as he progresses, I'll progress. So page three, if I look at that, he, the exercise of an option, it's on the bottom of that kind of first full paragraph that started on the last page, leaves him with a, a profit of several thousand dollars. Now, I just got curious about this, and I looked up, what would several thousand dollars be today? Well, they say the equivalent would be about $45,000. I also looked up, you know, this is in the 20s where he's running around now, 20s into 30s. You know, average income was about 2000 a year. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Um, that's pretty crazy. So he made a good living that year. He also, um, let me see if my math is right. Yeah, several, th yes, so because 1000 equals about 15000 so he really made a good living. He turned that into a profit, and then he continued to do that. And he says in that first full paragraph, I had arrived. He had arrived. People were listening to him. He was feeling good. And in that, drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. I remember that well in my life where food, I was entertaining people. That's why I think sales was just a great career for me. I was eating and drinking and doing anything I wanted and doing it on the hours I wanted. What could be better, right, for an addict who doesn't want to be pinned down to anything? So it really was taking an important part. And what I thought was a good part, I was having fun. Food was fun for me at that point in my life. But... Bill, as Bill quickly gets to on page three, my drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and every, almost every night. This is where my eating was. It was crossing a line, and I was starting to get repercussions. For Bill, he loses friends. His wife is getting unhappy. 
for me, I was gaining weight, um, top weight, I got to about, at least where I stopped weighing was 224. And, um, and I don't know, I stopped there. That's about 90 pounds more than I am now. So, you know, it, it just, it really was adding up, but it also started on some physical repercussions. It started on me, um, losing that big sales job, which turned out to be a good thing. Things started to happen where I couldn't keep up. I couldn't keep up with the eating even. I started to be um, embarrassed, ashamed, uh, not even started. I guess I always had been, but it hit me in, in a lot more ways. What I would point out, it was pointed out to me is, you know, Bill's story is 16 pages long. He spends the first half of that story on step one. And we're only on page three, and his life is already starting to have some serious repercussions. So spoiler alert, it's going to get worse and a lot worse, and it did for me as well. So he runs off in 1929 with golf fever, his wife again to applaud. You can notice how many times applaud is used in here. Just amazing. His wife to applaud. And he's he's overtaken by Walter Hagen, but golf permitted drinking every day and night. Again, I'll just, for me, that was my sales career. And how I look to others, he says, I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me roll fat checks. He's He's feeling like, oh, okay, maybe it's all okay because I'm looking okay to the outside. Wow, that that was me to a T and so many of us that I've heard since as I work with people. So, of course, the crash happens, and um, but Bill, Bill would not jump. He says, I would not jump. I went back to the bar. <laughs> Liquid courage for me. Food, right? Friends had dropped millions. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. Absolutely reached for food to bolster my courage, my determination in so many circumstances. Well, Bill runs to Canada. You know, he builds up his career again. He tears it down again. And he says, this time we stayed broke. And bottom of page four, he really, it's getting much worse. He's living with his in-laws, gets jobs, loses jobs, having brawls, no real employment for five years. His wife begins to work again in the early 1900s, not a good thing, and really he's spending any money he has paying off his bar bills. And on page five, this is really a turning point. Um, Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity, top of page five. That for me, I remember... Having, I had a nice apartment in Manhattan. I mean, I really had arrived and I was a disaster. I was a disaster inside. I had a, a friend of mine, we, we threw a picnic in Manhattan. So in the apartment, we decorated, we put trees, we did this whole picnic in Manhattan. I had a bunch of people over. We did this amazing buffet and, and then everybody left. And I proceeded to eat 99% of the leftovers, and there was a lot. And I remember laying on the floor of that apartment thinking, do, it, do I call 911? But if I do, how do I explain this? I was mortified. I didn't know. I, I thought I needed help, 
but I would rather die at that point than call and have anybody find out what I did. And I will tell you, my friend called the next day and we were talking about what a great party and I did survive the night, so that was good. And he said, oh, let me come over and we'll, we'll finish some of the leftovers. And there were none. There were none. So what did I do? I made excuses. It was such a painful time in my life and I couldn't explain what was happening. And mind you, I knew nothing about addiction, nothing. And of course, I probably went on a diet after that. And he says on the page five, there were periods of sobriety, but you know, things got worse. They just got worse and worse. I did lose that job, as I mentioned. So, you know, on five, he says, I woke up, this had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. He's starting to get an inkling that food is a problem. This is not, I literally just thought this was a weight problem. I really didn't think it was an eating problem. I, I know that's probably crazy, but I had no idea. But he says, I knew I couldn't take one drink. I was through forever, right? How many times have I done that? Shortly afterward, next paragraph, I love how he writes on this. Shortly afterward, came home drunk. There had been no fight. There, I, I, where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know I hadn't even come to mind. I can so relate. I had no trouble, everything aside, who Bill was, I ate like that. I ate like that. That little kid whistling in the dark, he gets himself together again, renewing his resolve. And how many times I did that, it was exhausting. And believed, he says on the top, page six, now I had what it takes. He had confidence. And then for me, one day I walked into a cafe to telephone in no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. Now, I don't know how it happens for me, but every single time, I don't even wake up until it's 30 pounds later. I don't know. Honestly, I pick up, and then 30 pounds later, and that may take any length of time. Sometimes I've done it very fast, like in a month, and sometimes it's taken several months, but I don't even notice it until it's 30 pounds. Crazy. My mind is, my brain is broken, and I didn't know it at that time. Repercussions get worse. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. I completely relate. And I hope that that it's what I just, I hope that all of us can think, yeah, have I ever felt remorse, horror, hopelessness the next morning? Can I go there every day in my step one and remember that's all that's waiting for me? That's what food did for me. It got me there every single time, no exception. So his, his anxiety, his, 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 his writhing nerves were stilled at last by the, now he's using the alcohol just to, his writhing nerves couldn't take it. And I'm sure for him it's become physical and mental. But Jin would fix that, you know. He keeps looking for a solution in alcohol. I thought food would give me energy. The lies, I mean, they are huge, right? It would give me energy. It would give me comfort. It would give me, it would be exciting. It would ease, so it would ease the boredom. It would bring me down from too much excitement. Um, I used it for everything and anything. That's why I know today it's not any circumstance that makes me eat because I eat for all circumstances. 
The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, Bill says, for his endured this agony for two years. It, it, goes, it goes on and on, and he gets to a place where he, I think he's really questioning, he, he says, I guess so really, he managed to drag his mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. He was afraid of killing himself at that point. And that's when I really got to a place where I knew something was so wrong with me. You know, you would think I would have known it before, but I didn't. This is where I started to wake up. I think this is where I think my higher power started to tap me on a shoulder. And mind you, I had no higher power at this point, but started to tap me on the shoulder and say, it's time to wake up. Because I remember literally I was still in that. This was, uh, I was in a pretty high-level job, and I was in the ladies' room eating a full bag of M&Ms in a stall, course had my you know trousers down so you know because had to look like I was in there legitimately and I'm crunching 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 getting that bag down as quick as I could and someone walked in and I started to choke and I was mortified I was feeling like you know and they just kind of said are you you okay and I said okay you know and but I was I was like something is really wrong with me and I literally got in my car that weekend. It turned out to be July 4th weekend. And just got in my car and said, I don't know that I want to live. I can't do this anymore. I am an empty suit. I was probably very much like Bill. Looked okay on the outside. I looked heavy. I was was fat, but I looked okay. I was functioning most of the time, uh, at least when people could see me. But I was an empty suit. And I ran up to Woodstock, New York. Many of you have probably heard of it. Yes, it's the one with the big concert. Very, you know, oh, maybe there's crystals, there's something, something I can, that would, or if not, if I want to kill myself, I don't want to do it where anyone I know will find me. So I really literally had that thought, went up July 4th morning. And what was so miraculous about this, y'all, it's it's incredible. Where on July 4th are you going to get a hotel in Woodstock, New York? It's one of the most popular places. Called around the second bed and breakfast I called. She said, oh, we just had a cancellation. Come on over. I go over and they are having an AA retreat. The whole place is all AAers filled. And somehow they knew me and I had never even heard of the thing, but I told them I eat like that. I I don't know what's happening to me. I'll talk a little more about that, but it is so clear to me. I was carried there, dumped there, and it was put in front of me. And so it's it's incredible to me. Um, Bill starts to understand some of his disease, and I think I started to understand when I met those AAers, something was happening to me. And Bill says on page seven, um, I think it's on seven, yeah, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. I started to realize something was wrong with me, really wrong with me. Um and he gets and he gets the self knowledge and I did, and he thinks oh so I fared forth in high hope now that I understand something's wrong with me it's like getting a diagnosis of pneumonia but never taking the medication ah okay so I have something wrong with me ah now I'm okay and of course next sentence but it was not for the frightful day came when I drank again I went home from that retreat 
and they had planted a seed and all they would tell me, they wouldn't tell me a whole lot, but they gave me the name of a woman in New York and lo and behold, the woman who ran the the bed and breakfast that I went to um, had been in OA in the area of New York out in Long Island and said, call this woman. They, I mean, she literally, I was dropped into these rooms. So they say, and Bill's getting to his end, you know, on page eight, I'm just going to go there. No words. This is one of my favorite paragraphs. I truly think this is step one. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. It was it for him. He was he was done. He he got afraid. He tried a few more things. Doesn't even mean he got sober right away, but he knew that he had no power. You know, think about a guy like Bill. You know, so determined, so full of ego. Think about me, so determined, so full of ego. Alcohol was my master. Food had taken over. I didn't even know the extent of it yet. You know. Um, so he comes from the hospital, and then there he is near the end of that bleak November. Because this has been a really, like Leah said, this tragic, horrific story. But now comes the hope, because near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. And one thing I always think, and I love about this story, I do think about a bleak November, you know. And he's he's in the Northeast. November, especially the end of November, cold, dreary. I bet Ebby did not want to go out. He probably thought, oh, heck, I want to sit by this fire and stay home. How many times have I thought that rather than going to a meeting or doing some kind of service or thing that I was asked to do? Kind of like when they asked me to do this. But, I, you know, that bleak November, he got up and he went to Bill. So here's this old friend. He comes on over. He's sober. And I feel like those AAs surrounding me, starting to talk to me and show me that there might be a way, was most definitely my Abby. The door opened, he's fresh-skinned and glowing and refusing drinks. And, and But he says to Bill on page nine, this story makes me laugh simply, but smilingly he says, because when Bill says, what's all this about? He says, I've got religion. So this is maybe my first lesson on how not to sponsor, right? The words not to say, because, wow, if somebody had said that to me, I would have run. It was hard enough that my first OA meeting was in a church and there was a lot of talk of God. It, that was hard enough, but I was desperate enough. And I think Bill's saying that to us. He says, I was aghast. I was aghast, like, okay, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. But he says, you know, he had come to pass his experience along to me and onto page 10, if I cared to have it. So Bill, I think this is interesting. Bill says, I was shocked, but interested, right? Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. For me, the only necessity to move to step two is really knowing how hopeless I am. If I'm out of ideas, I have no choice. And no choice is almost a good place to be with this disease. I had to give up. I really had to surrender. Just refer to another page. Um, pop over to page 25 in the big book. 
because I feel like these were my choices. The very bottom paragraph, there was but two alternatives. We had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And how do I blot out my consciousness? Food. And the other, to accept spiritual help. So even though I wasn't going to know how I was ever going to do this, what was going to be required, I had to at least get interested. So, But Bill comes from a background like I did, which was really not very religious, and then I actually rejected mine completely. It sounds like his family did some also. His grandfather did. So, And I had a lot of cynicism about the world's religions, and Bill says that on the bottom of 10, with ministers and the world's religions, I parted right away. So he wasn't having a, a lot of doubt, he said above. He had, he had little doubt that there was a purpose, a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay it all. But he did part with the religious aspect, and, and I did as well. And I, I was cynical. I thought, oh, you know, the burnings, the wars. People, Bill talks about that. You know, the bad behavior that has happened but never looking at the good behavior. But he, on page 11, he says, like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Uh, Evie had, and, and then had been raised to, from the scrap heap. So Bill's seeing this power. For me, I had to just see the power in OA. I had to know OA had the power that I didn't in some way. People were different. They were saying, I lost 80 pounds, 100 pounds. That's all I could hear at the time. But they also seemed really happy. So Abby, of course, proposes this, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And it melted the intellectual mountains. I love this statement, page 12, for those of us who used our minds for almost everything, Abby says, why don't you just choose your own conception of God? That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered. Bill makes the point, not only had I, you know, lived on that mountain, but I had shivered. It had been cold. It had been lonely. It had been uncomfortable. But I still lived in it. And then he says, I stood in the sunlight at last. Really, the next paragraph again for me is step two. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. He could not say it stronger. You don't have to call it anything. You don't have to pray in any way. You don't have to do anything. You know, again, in that rearview mirror, I see something dropped me into that, that bed and breakfast. Um, something was carrying me all the way along. Some higher for some higher purpose. And, you know, why not go with it? Bill has no reason not to. So he's taken four pages to talk about really building to his own step two. And page 13, well, my gosh, he covers almost all the rest of the steps. So I think what he's saying is for us, for me, the message was, Barb, just if you, if you are truly hopeless, you have no choice. Okay, if I have no choice, I'm going to reach for some kind of power, no matter how far-fetched it seems. And guess what? Then here's the steps you take to get to that power. You don't even have to figure that out. You just have to make a decision to move towards it. 
Wow. Wow. Could it be that simple, really? And you know what? It is. It is. That's what I had messed up in a way for so many years. I had thought it had to be very complex, and it was that simple. I had to turn towards it, and it began to come to me. So on 13, he covers the steps. There I humbly offered myself to God, as I then understood him, to do with me as he would. I placed myself reservedly under his care and direction. There's step three. Uh, I admitted again still for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. I couldn't do that right away. That's come over time. But it's, and it's still coming. I ruthlessly faced my sins. And again, not being a religious person, sins kind of bothers me, so I changed the word. But I, I faced myself. I faced the honest truth about my life and what I had been doing and, and what had been happening, what was, what was working and what wasn't working, and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch, step six and seven. Facing, facing writing down the truth was step four, six and seven, ha- becoming willing to change. My schoolmate visited me and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. Step five, we made a list of people I had hurt and to, or to whom I felt resentment. Step eight, and he's building the willingness to approach these people for step nine. And he's going to try to write all such matters to the utmost of his ability. Step nine, he was to test his thinking by the new God consciousness within. That's my step tens. Every day I am still testing my thinking. It's how I live today. Looking for honesty. I know how I think and what I think people are thinking, doing, saying. What I, you know, I have a million situations. I do a lot of step tens because I'm checking my thinking. I'm comparing it to do I think that's really the truth? Is that or is that the story in my brain? And he suggests, our 11th suggestion, I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Step 11, talks to us about prayer. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my requests bore on my usefulness. And then he begins, so really he's covered almost all the steps, Right. Actually, all the steps, because there is a bit of nine. Of course, he's still in the hospital in this case. He's going to go out and do a lot more of those nine steps. But he's at least looking at what he has to do to write such matters. And then he gets to step 12. And he says, like he's saying already, my friend promised when these things were done, I'd, I'd have this new relationship. I would enter this new relationship that I would have, and he equates the new relationship that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. That I would really have a different design for living. And he gives us the required elements, belief in the power of God, of some higher power, just that it's not me, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. It's really summarizing the program. And then he begins to look at on page 14, huh, while I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of people that would be glad to have what's been given to me. So he starts to address step 12, and he really uses the rest to talk about, you know, he says, my friend was had emphasized the absolute necessity 
from the bottom of 14 of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs, particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with that with me. He says on the bottom, if it, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. Certain trials and low spots ahead. Life is going to keep coming at me. And I think that that's my, uh, my experience today is that it is so critical for me to just keep checking my consciousness to live in 10, 11, and 12, and so much of my spiritual life has come through. Not just the prayer and meditation that I do. Those have been hard, and I've learned them over time. I, I still you know, just learn all the time. But through my work with others, it has been the most powerful spiritual work that I have done ever. Um, it's amazing how working together brought me to the connectedness that really I, I thought I yearned for. I mean, again, I think back to that leaning out, leaning in. I yearned to be connected, and then I pushed everybody away out of fear, everything and everyone. Away, uh, and what I've learned through vision and through the big book, these steps brought me a connection first back, I think, to my higher power. And my higher power is opening the door to other people, to a life I never could have dreamed of. I never could have dreamed of. So they really say, this is, this is the solution. This is the formula. If you, if you want to build the, the, you know, we, we built a, a thing the other day here at the house, and, you know, it drives me nuts. My husband starts at step five. <laughs> you know, there's steps one through 12, He's going right to five. He can function like that. I can't. I really have to start at my base and work. And I think that's all Bill was really laying out. And he says, and here's, I just go, some of the promises we commence to make, this is on page 15, commence to make many fast friends and a fellowship has grown up among us of which it is a wonderful thing to feel a part. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. And remember, he said the certain trials and low spots ahead, they will come. That's life. As an addict, I don't like to believe that, but they will. And, you know, he's seen just hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere. He's seen all kinds of miracles happen. Um, he gives a lot of good, other good wisdom, but I think that's really where... Where I'd like to end, I will just take the last paragraph, actually. Most of us feel we need look no further for utopia. And I really have to say, I, I feel today like my life has purpose. I feel more useful, certainly, even to my family, to my friends. It didn't. It's not just to my OA fellows, but I feel like I listen differently. I show up differently. And it's nothing I did. It is wholly because of the steps and this higher power continuing to carry me. He says, we have it with us right here and now. And that's an interesting thought. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Any day I show up and really just try and do my best, somehow that's at least contributing to this widening circle 
And those days when I sit home and I pull the blinds and I close myself off from that light, uh, like Evie easily could have done on that bleak November, somehow, um, I don't know, I can't do that anymore. Like I just, I feel, I feel like I need to show up and, and as best I can on any given day. So I think with that, I will pass. Thank you so much for letting me share. Thank you so much, Barbara P., for your beautiful presentation this morning. You've masterfully brought the pages of Bill's story to life in Technicolor through your personal experience. Absolutely smooth and beautiful. Thank you so much. Today's share ID, 16,745. That's one six. 745 for this morning's presentation. Barbara's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that, please. And we will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Barbara by pressing star 1 to unmute. I'll need your first name, including the first letter of your last name as well. Marcia D. Marcia P. Deanna P. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Okay, well, let's just jump in with Marcia D. Good morning. This is Marcia D. from Ohio, and thank you, Barbara, so much. It was very interesting to hear your insights on Bill's story. Um, my question has to do, and I was just reading this morning about this, and this comes up a lot, I realize, but this idea of recovering versus recovered. You know, I know on page 17, I think that's the first reference to recovered in the big book, but in contrast, in the OA 12 and 12, they continue to use recovering. Um, what are your thoughts about that, and how have you reconciled that in your recovery? Sure, sure. Great question. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's so interesting. It actually even starts with the word, use of the word recovered actually even starts on the title page, where it says the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And, you know, I had the same struggle that a lot of people do with the, the words. I try and keep it just to semantics. I don't, it doesn't, but it doesn't matter too much to me which one I use. But the definition of recovered is kind of get back or return to the original state, made well again. And I, you know, so I'm, I've gotten pretty comfortable with using it because for me the definition is, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, I don't care about food. I could care less. I'm not, it doesn't, I don't negotiate. It doesn't call me. It has been lifted, but I don't by any means consider myself cured. I know I am through and through an addict. And so that mental twist can always lurk. I guess recovered, I just feel like today it is, has been lifted out of me um, in recovery, it, to me, it gives me more hope, too, that there is, there is a way out. And I, it, Bill uses it so frequently through the book. The history I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but, the, you know, that a lot of the treatment centers, when they came in in the 50s, began using recovering. But actually, the word recovered, to my understanding, was, was used mostly in those first 20 years of AA. 
people believed they had and again knew they were addicts but I feel like recovered if I'm not living no one would know I'm a food addict today they don't see me pining away for anything and I don't I sat there as, as everyone had dessert last night at a little dinner thing and it could, I could care less. I was focused on what people were saying. That is miraculous for someone who woke up every single day thinking about food, what they were going to eat or what they weren't going to eat. So, but I don't get too stressed over it. Um, you know, either way is fine. I think you have to just be comfortable with whatever you call yourself. Thank you, Marcia, for the question. Deanna P. May I be heard? Yes. Good morning. Thank you so much for your service, Barbara um, and Leah. Thank you for um, Bill's story in such detail. Um, I really um, was curious to know, um, in living 10 and 11 and 12, how um, you mentioned how you longed for connection your whole life, and finally you feel useful to God. And I'm wondering if you could give some examples of how living in 12 and carrying the message, perhaps even sponsorship, has enriched your life and um, taught you some lessons. Thanks so much. Yeah, uh, thanks, Deanna. Yeah, I think when I think about 12 in particular, so many of the sponsees, first of all, who gets put in my life feels very purposeful. Like, in other words, who calls me? A lot of times I'll think, wow, we couldn't be more different. And yet, as I begin to work with someone, find we are exactly the same. And they bring me messages, so many messages, as they are learning and, or struggling or wrestling with a step, I'll find myself questioning myself about how am I wrestling with that step. I have to reaffirm one, two, three, and on all the time. So as I listen and as I work with people, it feels very purposeful who's put in my life. Um, this, when we do our sessions, I don't have like one way I sponsor. It feels very guided which paragraphs get picked out that we talk about and do the whole thing I just feels very orchestrated as long as I step out of the way um, so that I think in part and, and the examples is some of these folks have become my village we do a lot of step tens together we walk shoulder to shoulder as a guide the main thing I do is just hold the flashlight I don't have really anything beyond that I have my story and a flashlight and I can reach out a hand but then we walk shoulder to shoulder and I don't know I guess the last part of that I would say is in as I see people come alive literally awaken you know this it feels like step 12 um, uh, when they say or it, all of these steps when people literally have this awakening it is like waking up out of a coma I mean you, you all know if you you know with entire abstinence after your first 30 days you're like wow I had no idea how drunk basically I had been on food well same as people are working through the steps watching people wake up and come alive I, I just it gives me a, an immense feeling of joy and it helps my ego a little bit. I feel like I've been a little part of that, but I'm watching them find their path. So it's just 
billions of lessons. Like I'm not controlling their path, but I get to practice all those things. Just helping someone find their path has been an amazing feeling and realizing how little I have to do or know <laughs> to do it. I just really have to show up and have show up prayerfully myself, show up um, in good spiritual condition. So I don't know if that quite answers it, but it does. It built a village around me that I did not have. And sometimes when I feel like my village, I can still get lonely and feel like, oh, I don't know. I don't even know who I should call right now. I'll, I'll look through my phone. I'll see all the names uh, or I'll reach out to someone new. And honestly, that a lot of times will fill me. So working with others doesn't always have to be just sponsorship either. I think step 12 can come in a lot of ways, but any way I work with others seems to really give me so much. So hope that helps. Thank you, Deanna P., for your question. Who else has a question this morning? Star 1 to unmute. Karen S. Rhonda R. Rhonda R. I didn't get who. Karen R. Karen R. Was there somebody S? Anna S. Anna S. Thank you. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Carol C. Carol C. Okay, we'll go with this group. I have Anna S., Rhonda R., Karen R., and Carol C. Go ahead, Anna. Hi, this is Anna S. from New York. Um, thank you so much for your presentation this morning, Barbara. I, um, it was wonderful. Um, and I would like to know how long, how far along in your recovery are you um, that although you felt nervous or anxious about making the presentation, um, how far along in your recovery are you that you, would, you did go through with it, that you felt comfortable enough to go through with it? Thank you. Uh, yeah, great question. Yeah, so, I mean, I came into OA in 1988, so I'm 31 years in, or I don't know. But, but um, yeah, right now I have, uh, gosh, it's about 27, 28 months of abstinence, so two plus years in terms of this uh, entire abstinence. And, I, you know, I don't know, I just, I feel like when I'm asked, I try and trust that um, I'm not the one doing this that you know my higher power is driving so so yeah so so my hope would be like you know i know i'd want to give one more example for when i started when i started first sponsoring this might be you know and all of us go oh i'm so not ready i can't sound like they sound and i can't do like they do and i just did a lot of 10 steps around for sponsoring and I did the same when Leah asked me I was very scared and I don't I could probably be 10 years in and would have felt the same way because right away I thought has she ever heard me speak like really she wants me to do this and um, and I called a lot of people and I, I just had to call and do 10 steps about the fear and remember I'm not in charge hopefully somebody heard something they need to hear this is not about performing, as someone reminded me this morning. This is about showing up. So hopefully, hopefully, whether you're in day one or day two years plus or whatever, just show up, and it is amazing how you'll be used. 
Thank you, Anna. I'll pass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rhonda R., your turn. Good morning, Barb. You did a fantastic job. Thank you so much for your service. I totally related to the bathroom stall story. My question is, how do you show up when it's a hard day to show up? Some days are harder than others. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I do a lot of 10 steps and a lot of prayer. And um, gosh, I just use every tool. I like, I think Larry calls them the handrails. I use a lot of the OA tools um, in showing up. But I also really try and put this higher power in front of me. Literally, there are times when I will scoot over. I kind of am like visual and physical. So I'll scoot over in a chair. Let's say I have to go have a hard conversation. I had to have one of those on Friday. And I literally scooted over in my chair and was like, okay, big guy, you you know, you got to really do this for me, right? So it's constantly pausing and going back to that higher power, sometimes I will take just a few quiet moments to breathe, to get back to myself. Um, Another uh, fellow suggested, and I do this a lot, just a little spiritual walk. I'll go just walk around my yard for five minutes. I just constantly try and touch back to that center of me and know I don't have the strength to do a hard day, but I can tap into a power. Powerlessness can be a true relief because if I truly accept, I don't, I don't have, like think about all of our prayers, third step, seventh step, it's all asking for the strength to do what I need to do. So it's hard, but I really just use my tools and I use my friends and I use my higher power oh, to tap into those hard, hard days and boy, they do come. Thanks, Rhonda, my friend, part of my village. Yes, thank you, Rhonda R. Karen R. Star one to unmute. Hi, um, Barbara. Thank you so much for your share. That was um, that was incredible. And um, you know, you had said something in the beginning about you know as you started working the steps, you started to embrace um, leaning in, and that included leaning into um, the fear. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, I'm really struggling with this. I'm I'm fairly new um, to OA, so, and I'm just really having a hard time. So if you can share your experience, thanks. Sure, yes. Yeah, thanks, Karen. It is, I had so much fear and, and, and continue to have it. I don't want to say it's completely lifted either because it is it is scary. People are scary to me. Life is scary to me. And it's a big part of the reason why I ate. So the, in working the steps, probably the best wisdom I can give you is work the steps. Grab a, a big book guide and work them with someone, work them again. Where you know, In practicing these steps, what I came to see is a lot of the fear is stories I have in my mind And if I can remember, it's again, step one, my brain is as broken as my body in some ways. So if I just lean into my thinking and stay with that and isolate in that, I'm I'm in trouble. That fear will paralyze me, literally paralyze me. Um, If I lean into my fellowship, 
to the step work, if I do things that don't seem to make sense or, or are counterintuitive, for me, a lot of times when I'm really in fear, let's say like about doing this, where I really thought, oh, I'm going to just sound just awful and people will know, people will know. It's My brain will tell me people won't even think I'm really dumb. They will know I'm really dumb, right? So it's paralyzing. But I have to just then call and have people help me that say, you know, is that really true? Have you ever thought about that? You know, that about any speaker. Like, it is, so it's challenging my brain, not believing my brain and my perceptions completely. And I think the big book is really clear and the steps are really clear. Step 10 is such a simple process. Um, it's on page 84, but it really looks at, you know, when these crop up, and so they are going to, fear is going to crop up. When it crops up, I need to um, ask this higher power to be with me, first of all. Even if I have a shaky relationship, I can still start asking, even if literally when I started praying, I literally was like, okay, God, if you are there, which I really don't believe, and you know that, because if you're there, you know me, and I'm probably just talking to air right now, I mean, probably anybody who would have saw me would have thought she is completely insane. And I would, I'd look in the mirror and go, I can't even believe I'm doing this, but I'm talking, I'm going to ask to have this fear removed. Then it just simply tells me we discuss them with someone immediately. That's counterintuitive for me. I want to hide. I want to isolate. I feel embarrassed about what I'm thinking and what I'm afraid of. So I just, I follow the steps. I do it anyway. I make the call I don't want to make. Um... And it, you know, make amends if I do owe, if I have harmed anyone. And then I turn my thoughts to someone I can help. And that's a big one for me is not staying in the obsessive fear because I get obsessive about it. It's moving to someone I can help. Let me move a muscle. Let me shift gears. Let me call someone who I think has been struggling or, you know, just someone who might need a call. Um, might not be a program call. Might be a, a life call. Someone I hadn't talked to. Uh, let me smile at the cashier and chat with them for a few minutes rather than be all caught up in my stuff. So that's, that's I think, the best wisdom I can give you there is it really happens through the steps and it's a continuing process. So I think that's what I would say. Thanks. Thank you, Karen R. Carol C., your turn. Hi, good morning. This is Carol C., um, compulsive overeater uh, in New York. Barbara, thank you so much for your share. Got so much out of it. I really appreciate it. And Leah, thank you so much for your service. Um, I wanted to ask about, I guess, about your your experience with surrender. And I think you talked about, you know, when you were living in New York and, and you know, a few sort of examples of times when you really felt like you had kind of hit hit bottom. And I'm wondering about sort of when you really got or understood or, or really knew that you you had no other options, like you were out of options or, or that there that your way just, you know, wasn't working. And I, I'm wondering sort of that feeling of, you know, I, I think you said 
you, know, you came to that point and you just knew like you were out of, I guess you were out of ideas and, and you know, just sort of that experience was that kind of, was there a moment or can you talk about sort of different stages of that degree of, of surrender um, for you and your experience with that? Yeah, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, and I'd love to hear you, Carol, thanks. Um, so out of ideas, yeah. they didn't do those things and and I did. So I think I knew my body was broken but surrendering to this idea that I couldn't fix it is still an ongoing um progress. I guess an ongoing effort and I'm making progress. But I think the out of ideas also came after my my very I did re- have some unfortunately not everybody does. Some people never relapse. I did have some relapse in my history and when I um, surrendered to the idea that I would fully even enjoy my food. Now, I do today, but I will say I had to give up the idea of using food for excitement and fun and looking up recipes and making it even nicer. When I fully surrendered to that, and I did after this last relapse, you know, Two and a half years ago, I just found myself in the same despair, in the same horrid uh, situation, gaining weight, couldn't stop, eating things I didn't want to eat, walking in the stores of the grocery, just crying because I was trying not to buy things and then I didn't know what to buy even anymore to stop the craving. And I think I just realized, you know what? I can't have fun with food anymore. Like, there's no fun in this anymore. It's over. The party is over, literally. And all that's there for me is is shame and horror and degradation. So I think it has been come in stages. Um, and I'm trying to think if there was one specific instance. I mean, the M&Ms definitely showed me like something's really wrong bodily. But I think even getting this idea that I can use food in any way uh, or that somehow substitute foods. You know, a lot of us go there. I tried that in abstinence a lot. So if it's sugar-free, if it's this, if it's that, none of that really worked. I, I got out of ideas. I guess just trying it enough which finally convinced me, yeah, that never worked. It just never worked. But I, I think looking for any kind of effect out of food is what I had to give up the idea that it wasn't going to work for me. And uh, and that was a sad day. Honestly, Carol, that was a really sad day when I fully surrendered and thought, oh, it's over. The party's over. Now, today, I enjoy my food. I'm not saying I, I don't, but the party's over. It's not a party in my mouth. Somebody said every meal is not a Broadway show. It's if it's good, great. If it's bad, oh well, there'll be another one. It used to be if I had a bad meal, I thought I had to make up for it. I thought I got the right to make up for it. So I don't know, but yeah, out of ideas, it definitely comes in stages for me. I'm a slow learner. 
So thanks. Thank you, Carol C., for your question. Who else has a question for Barbara this morning? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Elena from New York. Karen W. Karen W. SDH. SDH, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. All right. Elaine F., go ahead with your question, please. Okay, my question is that um, I had done a lot of step work in the big book over OA and many programs. And I actually had boxes, and this is through the big book. I threw away some boxes over the years. I'm in program um, about almost 30 years, in OA about 20. And lately, I'm on the precipice of, you know, my my life changed. I became a mom as an older parent. I have a completely different life now. There's nothing the same. So my program is not going to fit my old life. And I'm just at the precipice of trying to break through these barriers, and I think, well, I did so much work, so much work. I went to five meetings a week at sponsors, sponsees. I mean, I, I basically felt like I didn't even have a life except for program for like probably 25 years. And now I'm like, I just feel like this resistance to really continue to do the work and continue to, to move through it. I find the food is calling me lately more than in a different way the last couple of months. I have a new job, a new job at home, whatever the stresses are. And I just can't seem to, like, you know, really get a sponsor and, re- and sit down Elaine, and do it. thank you for sharing. Could you pose a question, please? The question is, how do I get through this, this, this block? How do I get through this block that I just feel like, I, and um, I just want to also say I cried a lot through the work. I got very depressed and and. I went through, you know, some uh, uncom- a lot of discomfort. So I want to know how I get through to get through to the next steps in my program. I'm blocked. Thank you for your question. Barbara, would you like to respond? Or one time mute, Barbara. Oh, perhaps she has to call back in. Actually, okay. I'm so sorry. Oh, My phone popped off, and I had to redial. But I think I got the nature of that. Do you want to just restate the question? But I think I got the nature of. I just been saying that I got very blocked in, yeah. in moving forward. I've done a tons of step work and a lot sure. of work over the years, and now I'm like sitting around thinking, well, I just all did all this work. Which do I really have to do? Right. Keep do doing do? this. Yeah, yeah, no, great question. I'm glad you asked, you know, because for those of us who've been in OA a long time, a lot of times we get to that place where things may have to look different, but especially if the food's calling. Yeah, two thoughts came to mind. One is the set-aside prayer, because my life never looks the same as it looked yesterday. So literally, it is going to be different, and who knows what's in store for you. If you think about it, it's kind of like going on a treasure hunt now. Like, okay, let me see what my program is going to look like today. Um, But I love renewing the steps every so often. So two thoughts. One is, yeah, start from one, but you don't have to assume it's going to look like it's looked in the past because life is different and your higher power has 
that anyway, it'll be laid out for you. The set aside prayer helped me so much, and that's what came to mind because for again, for those of us who've been in a long time, I have to set aside everything I think I know, whether it's about the steps, my program, myself, and this higher power, and really come in fresh and new. It's hard to do, but if you can put aside the, the stress of, oh my gosh, how am I going to juggle? And it may look completely different. So I don't know, my best, at least my experience, I when I was having trouble or felt like I was going into a time when I was going to have trouble, if I saw the warning flags, I grabbed somebody. I, I, for me, a big book guide, you know, sponsors can be different than big book guides, but grab a big book guide, walk through, and it can be walked through in a way that fits where you are today. I hope that gives you some comfort because it just never looked like it doesn't have to look like it used to look. Um, but I always get some new information. So think about, huh, what could this look like now? Like you say, being a mom, who knows what, what your higher power will give you to be a better mom, to be a better, to show up even better. But especially if the food's calling, I would say grab a big book guide and do jump in without any assumption. And you can, you can, if you don't have it, you can Google the set aside prayer. That has been the most powerful prayer for me in putting aside everything I think I know, take a deep breath, and today's a new day. When you say the big book, are you talking about a specific one or because you mentioned some? Oh, yeah. So usually on vision, on the vision meetings every day, a lot of folks will put their name out as a sponsor or a big book guide. And um, that's at 850 Eastern. Leah can do these. And then I think, is it uh, 1050 also Eastern? That on those two meetings, they'll announce guides. So you can grab somebody who's in the program who can walk you through the big book. But Vision has a lot of folks. So if you talk to people in Vision, you can you can get a big book guide pretty easily. Thank it's a, you. It's a, it's a sponsor or guide, yeah. Exactly. Thank you, Elaine F. Karen W., your turn to pose a question. Hi, good morning. This is Karen W., Recovered on Long Island, and thank you both for your service. Barbara, that was so wonderful. It's so wonderful. It's hard for me to really ask a question because you covered everything. But you did say, I think, that you would not approach a new person by saying that you got religion. So could you just say, tell how, what, what is your initial conversation with someone who's new to program? How do, you, um, how do you introduce program, if that makes any sense? Thank you so much. Yeah, it sure does, Karen. Thanks. Yeah, I do it very much like the um, how, what we do in um, working with others, and that is I do a lot of listening. You know, I it really depends where I'm meeting someone, so I can't say that I have kind of a canned conversation, but I do try and really listen for what the person is going through, um, and then I just don't. I think. That, I think it's the A, 12 and 12, but talks about like leading with the chin. I don't, what I'm careful to do, let me answer it this way. What I'm careful to not to do is to use any words that could turn someone off or away. I knew how I wanted to lean out from everything and figure out why I didn't fit. So I'm trying not to give them any ammunition. So I don't, 
speak to religion or sometimes even spirituality, but I will just chat with them about what they're going through and then relate some of my experience with eating and what I went through. And I try and keep it on that level. I know certainly when I came to OA, it was to lose weight and to find a way to basically eat what I wanted and still not gain weight, but or to find some way to have a relationship with food. It was not about spirituality. So I don't go into that initially. It, now, if someone's talking about God and is comfortable and is in there, I will. So I just feel it out based on where someone is like the big book guides if someone's in a good mood and wants to talk you tell funny stories if someone's sad and depressed you you go there i go where the person is and just am very careful not to say something that would help them think i don't belong because if they're like me they're looking for ways to go this won't work for me so thanks great question Yes, thank you, Karen W. And we have SDH. Your turn to pose a question. Hi, SDH from Brooklyn, New York. Um, my question, I'm pretty new. Um, my question is, you you mentioned you have a step uh, sponsor. I was wondering how often you go through the steps and how do you know when it's time to do them again? And also, when you finish doing the steps, um, are you in touch with your sponsor daily, or is it just someone that you talk to when you do the steps? Yeah, so for me, and everybody does this differently, um, I have a sponsor, a sponsor who's not, not necessarily a step sponsor. I have a sponsor who I touch base with every day, and I have for years. And that's just, I just like that support. I send off food, like my commitment to food. I just like that. Those are all, again, handrails and tools for me, but I really like that. And of course, I just love her. I do a step study periodically, so I don't have kind of a canned, um, I do it every year or two years. I do it as I feel called to. And I guess what I mean by that is sometimes I feel like something's missing or some little sign that, gosh, food feels more important, or I'm in more fear than usual. Uh, so, so something, some disturbance will call me sometimes to say, you know, I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. And usually it's the calling to go deeper with my higher power. And a lot of times it's driven by some kind of pain, honestly, just like what drove me in to begin with was food, the pain of the food. Now it might be the pain of something I'm experiencing at work or a pattern that I keep getting into. So, but if I think about it, it's probably, it seems like every two or three years, I'll do at least some step work, light step work with someone. So I'm doing that right now. I just did another fifth step. I've been working six and seven, and I'm going to go into an eighth step. Um, so it's not very definitive, but usually it's a calling to go deeper because something is hurting. Something's not quite right. In terms of how touch in touch I am, once I finish the 12th step with people, we usually stay together for a while, and some stay forever, some move on, because once somebody has finished the 12th step, hopefully they're putting their time into working with others. So rather than like usually I'll be meeting with people like three times a week, we might go down to one time a week. And if that 
stays working, that's fine. But I move on to someone new, and hopefully they are. But we stay very connected in a sense of uh, I find most of my sponsees I'm still in touch with. Sometimes it's once a month. Sometimes it's, it's once every couple of months. Sometimes it's once a week. In terms of my – same with my step guide. And I've had two of them now uh, in vision and same. We probably once a month, once every other month. It just depends. Life gets busier sometimes. But a lot of times it will still be via text. And I do still send my food and an inventory to my step guide, uh, my big book guide. And um, that feels connected too. So I don't know. It's more haphazard. Let me say that. There's not a routine. I probably should have just said that first. But how often is really as needed. I still have a very special relationship. I feel like when you do this work together, you are connected for life. So even if you're not in touch, I think all my the folks I've worked with know they can call me anytime, and I feel as close to them if I haven't heard from them for a year as I did a year ago. So. Thank you, SCH, for your question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Barbara P., for your generous service this morning and bringing to life Chapter 1, Bill's story so very beautifully. Thank you very much. Again, the share ID for today's presentation, 16,745. That's 16745. We're going to close now from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.